Hi, this is Kevin McCullough. Thanks for listening to the Christian Outlook podcast, where we cover today's issues from a perspective that honors your Christian faith. Our podcast is brought to you through a partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I trust you'll enjoy. Oz Guinness, my friend, welcome. Thank you. I, last night was, uh, to use, it's becoming a cliche, it was magical because people keep saying that. It was, a, it was just an extraordinary event, and I was telling my radio audience just before you came on that without you, uh, Socrates in the City, I don't think would have come into being. You were instrumental in it, but what's astonishing to me is that this is over 22 years ago. Last night, you talked um, about the subject of your two more recent books, Zero Hour America, and then the one before that, The Magna Carta of Humanity. The subtitle is The Sinai Revolution and the Future of Freedom. Um, You are typically humble about uh, taking credit for anything, but I just want to say, I want to challenge you a little bit in the sense that the thesis of your book, The Magna Carta of Humanity, The Sinai Revolution and the Future of Freedom, you, 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 you uh, basically say, and just correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm going off, that it was what we read in Exodus, which amazingly happened something like 34 centuries ago, that was the first genuine revolution that paved the way for what we think of now as uh, American-style self-government and the liberties that we have and cherish and, and, and all of this. I, I had not... Uh, I had never seen that connection made clearly the way you make it in the book, The Magna Carta of Humanity. Well, put it like this, Eric. I mean, if you look at the modern revolutions, there are five big ones the English, the American, the uh, Russian, uh, sorry, the French, the Russian, and the Chinese. People say, well, the first two are different. The English failed, and the American, of course, succeeded. But actually, the first two are very close, not just because they're English-speaking, but they both come from the Bible. Okay, so that... Well, even when you say there are five revolutions, I want to cut in and say, yes, two of them are from the pit of hell, the Russian, the Chinese, and the French, three of them. And then you have the the English and the American, which were beautiful. Uh, And even when you say that the, the, the English revolution failed, in one way it failed, but it also paved the way for the founders who... Uh, were part of the American Revolution mm-hmm. in their thinking. But it failed in the sense the king came back. Yeah. <laughs> and so you had a very different history. Right. And many of the best, it was chaotic too. People like the levelers and the diggers and the monarchy men, it was a ferment of chaos. You know, the best book on it is called The World Turned Upside Down. And that was the idea of a Christian view of revolution. But the best of it, of course, came across here. Now, I think that's important because you go to the average university. Where did freedom come from? Where did toleration come from? The Enlightenment, they say. Rubbish. Historians would say, like Eric Nelson at Harvard, the 17th century was called the biblical century because it was fascinated with what they called the Hebrew Republic. In other words, through the Reformation, 
the notion of sola scriptura back to the Bible, they rediscover that Exodus, as Leon Cass puts it, is God's founding his nation. So even Thomas Hobbes, who's an atheist, explores Exodus, and many other of the great thinkers of the time did. So the ideas from Exodus are absolutely critical, and Americans don't know it. This is a big thing. This is why you know, your book, The Magna Carta of Humanity, The Sinai Revolution and the Future of Freedom, as has happened a number of times when I read your books, I am deeply embarrassed that I didn't know this because it seems so extremely central and seminal. It's not just, oh, this is another idea that I can add on to my other. It seems so central. So the idea that we haven't only forgotten our own founding and its roots, but the idea that that came out of the 17th century and that that, that these ideas uh, were known to come from the Bible, even people like um, uh, Hobbes and Thomas Paine, who were atheists, nonetheless knew there's no way around it. That's where this comes from. So the the idea that we have sloppily drifted into thinking this is something that came out of the Enlightenment and that everyone seems to think this is true, and it's not, it's an, it's an amazing thing. At mm-hmm. least for me, I have to pause and to try to take in the... But it's very important today. You think of people who are saying we've got to save democracy. As you know, the framers were very cherry of democracy because of all that Plato and others had warned that would happen in democracy. But the American experiment is a republic, and that doesn't just mean you don't have a king. It was a republic based on the Hebrew republic, and so the Hebrew notion of covenant, that's the key idea, became constitution. And so you can see, as scholars point out, there are three simple ideas behind covenant that affect politics. One is based on freely chosen consent. The consent of the governed comes from Exodus. But again, I I mean, look, uh, as you know, I'm a... Uh, a devotee of Homer, and so to think that we are talking about something, about ideas that came into the world, came into history before the Trojan War ever was fought, uh, in times that are practically ancient, and yet these ideas, which are transcendent and are as fresh today uh, as ever, came out of that World, it, it is really amazing to me, and I and I and I, I guess I, I still want to challenge you on where where did you um, find when did you always know this or who has been writing about this because it strikes me as so important uh, and and so when I read it in your your more recent book again which is called the Magna Carta of Humanity I thought why haven't I heard this more well I didn't always know it. And someone challenged me about 10 years ago, did you understand the roots of covenant? And suggested I read Daniel Elazar. And he's a Jewish scholar. Of course, you're Greek. We have an incalculable debt to the Greeks in all sorts of fronts. That's not minimized. But Elazar pointed out the Greek categories, monarchy, aristocracy, democracy, and their corrupt forms, tyranny, and so on. They are all dealing with governments, whereas another way of looking at it is looking at how societies are formed. And if you take that second question, you have three types, organic, 
societies linked by blood kinship, like an African tribe or a Scottish clan. Or you have hierarchical societies that are based on power, empires, kingdoms, militaries. But the third type is covenantal. Supremely the Jews, the Swiss, and the Americans. And people don't understand that. Now, of course, each of these systems has its weakness. That's the genius of Plato. You know, monarchy, corrupted, becomes tyranny. Well, you can see in the Bible the weakness of covenantalism. God keeps his word, his promise, and humans don't. And so that's always they need to be renewed or they break down. And that's what's happening in America today. In other words, we the people should be an ongoing commitment and promise-keeping by American citizens. But for a hundred reasons... Oz, you just said something, you know, again, I am sometimes flabbergasted. The idea that this this idea of covenant, uh, we can trace it back to Sinai, to Exodus, to Moses. Um, And then we see it again, of course, in 1776. that's a long stretch. Mm-hmm. It's but, an amazing. It's an amazing thing that we would see this biblical idea resurface in the United States of America, and that is why we are who the we are. Through, well, that's the point. This way. Yeah. In other words, when the Christian faith became the official faith of Rome in AD three eighty, I think the Church made a great mistake. It copied Roman structures uncritically. Roman structures, hierarchical. You had a Caesar, consuls, senators, and you had a pope, cardinals, and bishops. Hierarchical. And you know, it was a Catholic layman, the great Lord Acton, who made the famous remark that all power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And he was commenting in that comment on his own church. He was criticizing it. Because the Catholic church is hierarchical, and say the corruptions of the Inquisition and so on all came out of that structure. The Reformation said, no, that's not biblical. Not so much Luther, but Calvin, and then Zwingli and Bullinger, John Knox in Scotland. In England, Oliver Cromwell, for better or worse, said, Exodus is the direct parallel to what I'm trying to do. And of course, he failed. But you think of the Mayflower Compact is a covenant. John Winthrop's speech on the Arbella is all about a covenant. When John Adams writes the first written constitution, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, he calls it not a constitution, but a covenant. Well, we have to remember how close, in, in tracing this, we have to, tra- we have to talk about how close uh, the things you just mentioned were to the Reformation. Obviously, uh, the, the Diet of Worms is... 1521, and then we have these various figures that you just mentioned in in the 16th century. So by the time you get to the Pilgrims, and then 10 years later, John Winthrop, it's really uh, within shooting distance. Mm-hmm. It's it's it it came; these ideas came out of the Reformation, which of course came from a, a reappreciation of what the Scriptures are saying, um, which leads to 1776. But I think, and it's part of what you're saying, these ideas have to be uh, remembered. We have to stop and say, wait a minute, we, we have to go back. We've, 
we've lost the thread. Mm -hmm. we, we, we didn't think uh, we needed to worry too much about keeping the thread uh, because we thought everyone knows this, but eventually everyone doesn't know it, and it's why we are where we are today. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Daniel Elazar. Uh, is he the first one uh, to, to write uh, at length about this in he, recent times? The first to write at great length, 10, ten or so books on it. But you have others, Michael Walzer at Princeton or Eric Nelson at Harvard. They're all writing in the same area. So it's a matter of serious scholarship now. It's not some cranky idea. But think of the significance. It means that America is a nation by intention and by ideas. And one of the implications of that you see from Exodus and Deuteronomy is that the leader is the servant of the people. Moses is the first great national, national leader described again and again and again as servant. Servant of the Lord, servant of his people. But here's the point. Moses becomes Moses, as the Jews put it, our teacher. In other words, leaders of a nation by intention and by ideas should be constantly calling their people back to it. That's what Lincoln did. He appealed to the better angel of the American nature. He believed in the Declaration very profoundly. And you think today there are no national leaders who are even describing what made America great in the first place and then calling America back. That's the great missing thing today. A leader who's a national teacher and a national servant is not about the president. It's about the people. I don't know that, that, that those leaders need to be uh, presidents or senators. I mean, really anyone um, could do it, and it's necessary that we do it. We're doing it right now, Oz. I mean, by talking about this here, we're helping people understand these things. By writing the books that you wrote, you helped me understand these things. I subsequently have written... Uh, about it, and I speak about it all the time. I mean, it's a, it's a process that may uh, we may have to do an end run around the Lincoln who doesn't exist in our time. Because, But at the end of the day, you know, you have a far bigger audience than I have. But at the end of the day, even all our audiences together are small compared right. with a president. Well, of course. And of course. You, uh, in history, um, it's either been someone senator or higher or a charismatic leader with a small c, like a Martin Luther King. Yeah. But at the moment, there's no charismatic leader in America calling America back. Right. And sadly, there's no national leader either. Yeah. Well, um, there, there are uh, many ways to skin a cat. And uh, I, I think that um, we'll see. But I'm, I'm, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic because I just think our discussing this here is, is vital. Again, we discussed it last night at Socrates in the City. But I think... Once people are introduced to these ideas, it begins to uh, get them thinking and talking along those lines. And so we're, in some ways, we're only just beginning. But it's so extremely important. So uh, I just want to say again, I'm amazed by the idea that what you describe as um, a covenantal what? System? How do, how do you put it? Mm -hmm. a covenantal political order. Okay that we see this only three times emerging in history. First, at Sinai, in Exodus, 3,000 
400 years ago, which is astonishing. I think we have to be clear that even if you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, you'd have to say, well, that's weird. That's very strange that out of nowhere in the desert, this extraordinary idea would come out, which then eventually leads through the Reformation to what we call America. It's at least fascinating historically. You mentioned, I don't want to uh, skip over it entirely, but you mentioned the Swiss. I really don't know much about um, how their way of doing things came about. Can you touch on that for a moment? I don't know the full details of that. It goes back to the Articles of Confederation and so on way back in the 1200 or so. But so, they didn't put their stamp on anywhere else, whereas the American Constitution, Covenant Constitution, became a model for the whole world, but often without the underpinnings. It's important to say that the Hebrew Covenant wasn't unique. You had Hittites and the Irish oath ceremonies and so on, but it was, it was quite distinctive. It's the first time that God himself made a covenant with the people, And unlike the Hittite covenants, where you had something very binding but a very narrow area, like a legal contract, the Hebrew covenant covers the whole of life. And so you have something quite distinctive, but not totally unique. Also, it's hard for me, based on my limited knowledge of the Hittites, but it seems to me that that would have been more hierarchical by far than what Mm -hmm. you found what you find it was called a suzerainty treaty in other words a sovereign power imposed it on some weak power yeah so not quite the same thing in in any event and the key difference the consent of the government and if you think of that it's quite extraordinary that when the lord of the universe puts forward a covenant it's not ratified until the people say three times in exodus all that the lord says we will do that's the origin of the consent of the government. So how uh, would the American covenant differ from, from the, uh, the Hebrew covenant? The American covenant is not a covenant with God. The Hebrew is. It is at best a covenant under God. In other words, we the people are covenanting with each other. But it's not in any way a covenant with the Lord particularly. Now, that becomes very important because under God used to be a very important idea. You can see how Lincoln brought that in. But under God means an awareness of God and an accountability to God. And now we've got sort of notions of God on our side, which is a very different sort of thing, an instrumental view of faith that we can use religion to bolster the nation. And that's extremely dangerous and very wrong. And people, Lincoln was very clear of the difference between under God, which is right, and God on our side, which is dangerous. I don't know where you're getting that idea from. In other words, when you say God on our side, it's very dangerous. I don't see that danger. What do you mean by that? Well, God on our side is the phrase that even you take Germany, God means Well, no, I mean, I'm familiar with the problem of people saying God is on my side, but I, in our time, I don't see this it, as being... It almost inevitably becomes utilitarian, instrumental, you know, bishops blessing bombers, and, you know, and so on. In other words, the church becoming 
the chaplain to the status quo. That's very dangerous. Lincoln was clear. The status the quo is God, cultural Marxism. Well, in parts of the country, certainly. Well, in the, in, um, you but, know that in the centers of power, in other words, we're de- we are now dealing with that. That is the, and you know that I'm getting this uh, as much from you as from anywhere, but that that is what we're dealing with at present. That's oh, the madness that we're dealing with. So in the idea book, that, uh, you know, something that people call a Christian nationalism would be something to worry about. I think wh- where in the world do you see that being an issue. Uh, I, I mean, it, I wish it were an issue and then I could, could rail against it, but I don't see that being an issue. No, this to me, somebody last night, um, and by, by the way, a lot of people listening don't know that after the Socrates event, we have these we, dinners, patrons uh, dinners, a smaller group of people gather, and we had that last night. And um, in the evening, folks get to ask questions of the the guest, which uh, I'm the one doing the, the, the converse, having the conversation in the principal event. But then afterward, uh, if you come to the patrons' dinner, you can ask questions. And one of the questions was, I guess, a couple of the questions were touching on this. One of them was about James Hunter's idea of faithful presence. And I think... Um, I don't, want to, I don't want to muddy the waters, but this is related in my mind in the sense that I, I think it's about perspective, uh, that, that in, in, um, in there are people, probably um, James Hunter and uh, uh, people like maybe, maybe Tim Keller and others, they, don't, they, they, they seem to think that there is, um, well... Comment on these ideas a little bit because I, there's a, there's a lot to pull out and I and I don't want to say everything up front. Well, both James and Tim are good friends. Yeah. So I'm not attacking their ideas at all, but there's a lot of confused thinking. Start with your Christian nationalism. You know, George Orwell points out patriotism is good. If you take every human needs meaning and belonging, and patriotism is a matter of legitimate belonging. We all love a place. And that's very important. Now, nationalism is when the place to which we belong, in this case the nation, is idolized and becomes an idol, right or wrong. That is very dangerous. I mean, I think some kinds of nationalism are like that. I think I would argue that other kinds of nationalism can be healthy. And so the term, to me, is neutral in the but sense Orwell's that... Orwell's term is a good one, though. Yeah. We're, we're patriots. Yeah. But we are very wary of nationalism. Now, the term has come into vogue because of globalism. In other words, in the old days, George Washington, for example, loved the notion of everyone living under their Actually, own vine and fig tree. Now you're touching on a big idea. Please continue with those thoughts. Well, biblically speaking, freedom must begin in the heart. And that's why freedom of conscience is so important. But it's balanced by what you might call local freedom. And it's captured biblically by everyone living under their own vine and fig tree. And George Washington refers to it 49 times in his letters. But in the old days, then, you had local freedom. But then you had national freedom. And in the old days, the nation was often a threat to the local. Americans forget that the word federal comes from the Latin word for covenant. It was a covenant between the local, the town hall of Massachusetts, and the U.S. Congress on Capitol Hill. But federal today, the feds, it's become all national. 
Well, where we are now, the global is a threat to both the national and the local. Which is why I think a healthy sense of nationalism is a bulwark against globalism. Absolutely. As long as the nationalism Understood doesn't as become. Yeah, well, that, that, right. So, In other words, you should. We're globalists as Christians. As the Lord says to Abraham, in the actual Abraham, sense of the term globalism, you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Yeah. So we should have the local, the national, and the global in balance, and that's the challenge. Whereas many of our younger Christians, they don't, they're globalists without being realizing it, so they criticize every patriot as a nationalist, and that's rubbish. I, I think it's just my sense that, that people who are um, either – maybe they tend to be politically liberal and they're over wary of uh, right-leaning uh, fringe groups. And they keep bringing it up as though it's a thing, as though this is the threat. And I think to myself that, that those are extreme minorities routinely denounced by anyone who is a patriotic, conservative, Christian, American. Uh, it, it, there, there's a, a book, I, I found it very unpleasant, by uh, Andy Stanley recently, uh, in which he raises the specter of the Westboro Baptist. Uh, you know, and I think to myself, I don't know a soul who doesn't think that they aren't nuts who need to be run from and <clears throat> shunned. But he, he raises the specter, and I feel like th- folks like that, they're setting up a straw man as though the threat from the right is equal to the threat from the left, which is just patently preposterous to me. And, and when someone does that, I immediately know they're not being honest about where we are. Now, I'm often asked, isn't the right as dangerous as the left? And, of course, it can be wrong and ugly and sometimes evil on the right. You think of swastika waivers or uh, do you know any swastika waivers well we know of those who are definitely anti-semite but i don't anti-Semite. but i don't know no, anyone me, who wouldn't me, denounce them instantly let, let me make my point though yeah the big difference between the right and the left is in two words social location in other words where do they have power whereas the left is influential in the colleges universities in the press and the media in the bureaucracy in the intelligence community and going down the line the, the, the left is far, far more dangerous in America because of its social location. Well, what you're really saying is because of its power, because of its well, cultural power. In and a postmodern world, everything's about power. Thanks for listening to Christian Outlook. Our program is coming to you today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you enjoy our podcast, take a moment and tell a friend to subscribe today.